is a great joy to be with you this morning. We were reflecting before the service that the last time I was here was for Michael's uh, ordination. So it's been a little bit of time now. Grateful for Alex and Jody, for Michael. Uh, thinking about Bob and Kathy and their ministry of the deaf that you are all supporting. Grateful for all your leadership in the diocese, especially those involved with Camp Araminta. And especially grateful today for Danielle and Bernice as they come to be received into this part of the body of Christ. There is only one body of Christ, but this is uh, a part of the family that he's called uh, together. It's a happy day. I don't know in the last couple of years if I could count on how many fingers, how many happy days I had. It, it has not been an, a happy time. And it's not been an easy time in our culture by any means. All we can see if we look around sometimes is division. What divisions come to mind, right? Just come, don't speak them out, but just think of the news recently. Divisions everywhere. Comes to mind for me, Russia and Ukraine. Obviously the US and Europe are involved in that situation. I think of the divisions not only between political parties, but within political parties. I think of the culture wars that continue on in our world. And I think of a divided church. It also, this kind of division also affects families. I have a friend whose sister is involved in one of the many conspiracy theories that it's out there. And that sister will not speak to her family members unless they agree with her about it. She won't even speak to her son. There's an us versus them in the world. It's really at the heart of the human condition. And if we're honest, we all have prejudices about people who are different than we are. The fancy word is xenophobia, the fear of the stranger. Sometimes it has to do with actual strangers, but I think sometimes it's just that we're uncomfortable around people that are different than we are. Sometimes we just don't understand why people think differently or act differently than we do. And while I'm about to say that what I'm about to say may annoy some of you, I think that while we should strive not to be racists in our attitudes and behavior, I think we all have some racism in our sinful hearts. It's just part of the us versus them that's part of our sin. Jesus makes it clear that our desires are sinful because our hearts are corrupted. And that goes into all of our relationships. That's the, where the division starts. But the good news is that the gospel of Jesus is for everyone. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. And so having said that, just take a moment. Is there anyone in your life or any group that you think the Lord could never reach if you were honest. They're just beyond it. There's no hope for them. We're in the season of epiphany. Epiphany meaning manifestation, the fact that Jesus was manifested to the whole world. We need to remind ourselves of that. It was true at the beginning of Jesus' life. It's true in the history uh, of Israel that Jesus refers to in his sermon in Galilee that we're about to look at in a moment. 
Jesus came to save us, to be brothers and sisters with anyone who truly believes in him. And in the midst of that, he is shattering barriers in the midst of division. And I want to look at two barriers, two barrier-breaking moments in the life of Jesus. Now, there are many. The first one, in some sense, is at his birth. And that's what we celebrate at the beginning of Epiphany is uh, he's born and then the wise men come to see him. Now, to understand that story at a slightly different level than perhaps uh, we, we usually do, certainly different level than I used to think about it, let me give you a context. If you asked a Canadian who was being referred, to whom uh, a reference was, if you said that that person was from the country to the south, they'd say it's a, a citizen of the United States, right? That we're from the South, as far as Canada's concerned. If you asked a Chinese person in 1975 about someone who came from the empire to the North, they would say the Soviet Union. And when it says that the wise men came from the East, we miss, I think, what's going on there to some degree. Because at the time of the birth of Jesus, there would be no question in anyone's mind where they came from. It wouldn't be a question of which city or which country. The question is which empire did they come from? When Jesus was born, the people who came from the earth were coming uh, from the east were coming from the Parthian Empire. So to more fully understand the coming of the Magi, you need to understand a little bit about the Parthian Empire. Most of us never studied it. We studied the Roman Empire because our civilization comes from uh, the West. When we talk about Western civilization, we mean Rome and West. But to make a long story short, you need to know a little bit about Herod. You need to understand the division that was taking place at the time of Jesus. There had been great political and religious conflict. To make a long story short, Herod had been the governor of Galilee under Roman rule in 40, in 40 BC. Doesn't sound safe over there. Okay. <laughs> 40 BC, there's a civil war in Israel. Now, it's a client kingdom at that point under the Romans. But the king, Antigonus, decides that he's going to side with the Parthians. So the Parthians come marching in, and Herod, who's on the Roman side, flees for his life. He first uh, heads to Masada, which at that point was not a fort, just an outpost, and then on to Rome from there. He rallies people in Rome, gets the soldiers to go with him and others. He heads back to Israel and gets into a civil war with uh, Antigonus the last Jewish king, and the Romans and Herod and those on his side in Israel win. Herod is made king. Antigonus is killed. The Parthians move out. Just imagine the U.S. moving out of Afghanistan. Same kind of dynamic, a foreign power that's involved in a, in a civil war. Now, Herod was not Jewish. He, he did marry into the previous royal family, but he's not Jewish. Now, imagine, just for a moment, that you're Herod, and you've taken over the country with Roman help. You've ruled at the point Jesus is born for over 30 years. 
You've defeated Antigonus, the man who was born to be king. He was in the Jewish line of kings. But you were born a non-Jew. And now, emissaries of your enemies, the Parthians, show up. That's who the wise men are. Yes, they could have been astrologers and court counselors. Yes, I'm not debating that. The word magi relates to our word magician. But from Herod's point of view, these are the bad guys. These are the ones who threatened his life. And they say that a supernatural star has guided them. And then they ask a question which is incredibly threatening from Herod's point of view. Matthew 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You weren't born to be king. You were installed by the Romans. Who was the one? Where's the one born to be king? It's a little like showing up at the White House and saying, where's the real president? Which is a divisive question. So no surprise at the reaction. We know all these verses. We just haven't heard them this way. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him because these are all the leaders that are now under the Romans. And, it, and troubled is a little weak. It's a word that's off, also translated terrified. It can be translated extremely agitated. The wise men have come to the royal city, but they're directed to Bethlehem because no one in, it, in Jerusalem is aware of this event. I mean, it would be natural. If you knew a king was being born, you'd go to the royal city, right? But they head to Bethlehem, according to the prophecy from Micah. And Herod hatches a plot to use them as his spies. What's his plan? Find the baby and kill him. Herod had a long history of killing his rivals. So that's, a, that's what's going on when the wise men show up. And then in the next scene, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. We know that part. That's a wonderful moment. It's sort of, I don't know how to say it, it's sort of a divine GPS. You know that moment when you finally get to your destination on a GPS and it announces, you have arrived. They had arrived. But listen to this. Right at the beginning of the story of Jesus, God brings the enemies of the leaders of Israel to be worshipers of Jesus. Born not to be just king of the Jews, but as they undoubtedly would have heard from Mary, who would have been relating what the shepherds heard, he was born to be savior and lord of the whole earth. But that, that barrier between not only Jews and non-Jews, but between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire is broken from God's point of view. And he shows it off by bringing the Magi through a star. So one barrier broken there. Similar thing takes place in the gospel reading from this morning. So I'd ask you to turn to Luke 4. And for those of you whose memory is longer than mine, you may recall that this was actually the reading last week as well. But it wasn't preached on. So we're in fresh territory. The setup is that Jesus has come to his hometown, the place he grew up. And as the story goes, he quotes from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And then he gives 
what is essentially, from the point of view of the people, the messianic job description. They're waiting for Messiah, and this is a key passage. This is very well known to them. In fact, the word anointed, you can translate, if you go back into the Hebrew, you can really say, it's, he messiahed me. Because that's what anointed is, 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 is. The anointed one is the Messiah. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. But then at the end, and you see it at the beginning of your reading today, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now stop and think about that. You've been waiting for the Messiah. Somebody reads this passage. Everybody understands it's the Messianic job description. And he says, it's fulfilled essentially in me because I'm now proclaiming good news. The Spirit's on me. In other words, this passage is about me. I'm the Messiah that you've all been waiting for. And their first reaction is, wow. And they're amazed. But boy, it doesn't last long. Because the next thing they say in verse 22, they turned to each other and said, is this not Joseph's son? We know this guy. He grew up here. Basically, and it's even clearer in Matthew, how could he be the Messiah? You're just Joseph's son. And as this turmoil begins to take place, Jesus takes a proverb and says, I think I can summarize your thinking. Verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. In other words, if you're the, really the Messiah, why are you doing this stuff? Where are the healings? Now it's Sabbath, they may not have expected them on the Sabbath. Why didn't you do them yesterday? Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you fulfilling other things that are taking place in that Isaiah prophecy? You've given us a claim to be Messiah, but you haven't given us any evidence. And Jesus responds with another proverb. Verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. That's why you're not going to accept it. And then he gives two examples of prophets not being accepted by, his own people, by their own people and having to minister outside to the enemies. Verse 24, Elijah sent to a starving widow in Sidon. And then Elisha later healing the Syrian general Naaman of leprosy. Gentiles. Enemies. In other words, if you're not going to listen to me, I'm going to tell you how this gospel is going to go to the enemies. They don't like it. They get angry. Now somehow as they take, carry Jesus off, somehow the Father protects him. We don't know how. Maybe they realize that if they killed Jesus, they were breaking two commandments. You should not murder. And it's hard to argue you're keeping the Sabbath holy if you've just killed somebody. Particularly the guy who was teaching you in your synagogue. We don't know. We know that, God was, uh, that Jesus is protected and he walks out from among them. But in the midst of those stories, we realize that the Lord cares for everyone, even our enemies, even the them who threaten the us. Look into your own heart. Think of all the people different than you. Are you asking Jesus to help you to love them? When you look at a division, do you pray for both sides? 
listened to a reporter who was interviewing a woman in Ukraine who, while she lives in Ukraine, she has relatives in Russia as well. And the reporter said, which side are you on? And I loved her answer. She said, I'm on the human one. Everything in our culture is constantly calling us to take sides. Social media is one of many battlegrounds. The cable channels are in a sort of information war with each other. And it all plays into that us and them in our own hearts. That's why the advertising revenues are so good. Because we, we want to be an us and we want a them. We want to feel in the right place. I would call this situation the Goldilocks syndrome. If we're honest, we think people are too, either too fat or too thin, too overeducated or too undereducated, too liberal or too conservative, too far right or too far left, too self-effacing or too self-promoting. And the assumption is all those things that we are just right. And the people who agree with us are just right too. And we rarely question our own values or their sources. We are the us. And we ignore God's point of view that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, including us. Or to use a different language, we're all addicts, addicted to our own self-centered desires. And Jesus died to set us free from sin and death to help us recover. So there is an us. I don't mean to say that every position out there is right or true. And there is an us in the sense that if we've put our faith in Jesus, we are children of God by the mercy of God and we are in a sin recovery process. And there is a them, those who do not know Jesus and who are trapped in their sin addiction. But we should be longing for them to get help to join us in the us of being in the kingdom of God because we don't deserve to be here either. Our calling is not to despise them but to love them for the sake of the gospel. Don't write anyone off when it comes to the gospel. We were all enemies of God whom Jesus made friends. I think of this story of a person well known to many of you I'm sure he was an agnostic. He didn't want, he had no desire to, to meet God, to be in any relationship with God. It was going to crimp his style. He had Christian friends around him who were sharing the gospel with him, nevertheless. But he was, he was pushing God away. His name, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia stories and Christian apologetics and many other things. He was three years old, and then there comes a night, having pushed God away so long, he writes this to describe it. He said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, or Magdalen, this is his college at Oxford. Night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him 
whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. God's on his tail. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. But then he says this. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. He went from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. The Magi were led by the stars and the scriptures to find Jesus. Naaman was led by his need for healing. The widow from Sidon needed food. C.S. Lewis was hounded by the Lord. In our epistle reading this morning, we heard about how Paul was an enemy of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's an enemy. Miraculous cases, every one. Let me bring up one more miraculous case. You. How did you come to faith in Christ? How did God so orchestrate the events and people in your lives to bring you to the gospel? You didn't get to Jesus by yourselves. And if God could save you, who couldn't he save? Now maybe you're not a Christian yet, but you are here because the Lord is after you one way or another. And it is time for you to see that taking place. As C.S. Lewis said, it's time for you to admit that God is God and that you know you're a sinner who needs Jesus the Savior. And to recognize that in Jesus, all our barriers are broken down whether we see it or not. Example of division between Jews and Gentiles which was threatening the early church as Jews became believers in Jesus and Gentiles became believers in Jesus. And Paul addresses it in Ephesians, the new, uh, Ephesians 2 in the New Living Translation. He says this, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, Paul continues, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. One of my greatest concerns about Christians in this culture right now is that we don't understand that from God's point of view, while we were enemies, we've been made friends, but we are to have no enemies We're to love them as if they were us. And we're called to find our identity together as Christians in him and in him alone. He calls us to his side to be like him. Matthew 5:44. Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen to this verse, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, he's saying, do you want to look like your Father? Do you want to have a, uh, an, bear an image that looks like your real Father? 
then you love your enemies. And you pray for those who persecute you or at the very least, the ones you disagree with. It could be somebody in your own family. It could be another nation. It doesn't matter. If we want to look to have a family resemblance to God the Father, we need to stop seeing the world as divisions where it's us versus them. Ask Jesus to help you see the barriers that divide us and pray that he can show you how to love both sides. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for the humility that you would accept us as your children when our heart of hearts, we want to run our own lives. Help us to have compassion on those with whom we disagree. Help us to pray for both those who agree with us and those who disagree with us, recognizing that you love all and we want to have a family resemblance to you. We cannot do this by ourselves. We ask your Holy Spirit to help us as we're praying for the Holy Spirit for Danielle and, and Bernice today. We pray you'd be filling us with your spirit too. That we could represent you in a divided world. Pointing to the great love you have for us all in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.